this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. It's almost fall. A double Pantel is here. Double, thank you for taking time out of your day. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me. Um, and Double is from Evolve Agility. So before we get into our topic, do you want to tell them a little bit about Evolve Agility and the new stuff that you've just started doing? Yes. Uh, so I'm the founder of Evolve Agility, and uh, what, what I do is I, I work with clients in training and their transformation. I also like to support my, uh, my students who go through my training courses, so I support them by either helping them write their first article or uh, provide a specific guidance on a situation that they are face, facing in, in their world of work. You know? And uh, I've, I've created this video series, uh, which I call Agile Will Fail at My Company Because, and fill in the blank, so humor me, uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, you probably can think of one or two reasons why, why you might be concerned that Agile may not succeed. So I invite those case studies, and uh, then I invite uh, my past students and friends. Uh, Dave has been in the very first case study review that we did. And we make a short video and upload it on YouTube. So that's something that uh, I'm really excited about doing right now. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Dave, to share about uh, this particular idea. I don't know. It was really fun. I mean, I learned some cool stuff from the other guys that were on that. And I was also, I thought it was neat when I was looking through your site earlier today that you've got blog posts from students. Um, I think that's a really great um, way that you're helping them kind of get their, their footprint out there. But we're doing this podcast today because uh, I've got some questions from students and I know that I need help on this one because I've given them my opinion and I'm not sure that it's enough. So I brought in an expert. Um, two, two situations fairly similar. So I'm going to try to highlight them both and then we're going to talk through what we see as the different aspects of this problem are and maybe some potential solutions around them. So um, there's one person who was a student of mine who is a product owner and they report to a person who is their manager and their manager is somebody who was previously a business analyst who got promoted into a product owner role and then moved up to manager. Um, and they were promoted because of the size of the, the and scope of the project they were on. But apparently, from a day-to-day functioning of their job, they have continued to be a business analyst the entire time, which is making it very difficult for this product owner to actually be a product owner because their manager is the BA and is kind of driving everything. The other situation is a guy who has been asked to act as a scrum master at a small startup a small startup where the founder of the company is still having the muses swarm and fill him with ideas. And he is constantly coming in and handing them to the scrum master, trying to derail him sprint after sprint after sprint. And because it's a startup, everybody in this company is is used to playing all roles at all times. So the fact that people have the role of product owner, scrum master, tech lead, whatever, they're stepping all over each other. And it's causing a lot of trouble for the Scrum Master who was brought in from an organization that actually knew how to do Scrum. So um, that kind of, is that, is that what you took away from reading the, the emails that I sent you? I think so. Uh, so let me just double check. Uh, the second case study is that of a Scrum Master. No, their, their active role is that of a Scrum Master. That's it's, correct. Okay, cool. And the first yeah. one is about uh, a product owner who recently stepped into that role when their manager used to be the product owner. Uh, she was also a, a, a business analyst prior to that, and now uh, n- now they are having uh, challenges in how to manage that relationship. No, 
Yes, because the person who is their manager is still doing the job, the PO job and the BA job. Right, right. So basically, I'm seeing this as how do you help your manager stop doing your job <laughs> for you? Right. And give you the space to do it. And how do you help those even above that understand the impact of their behavior when they keep running in and demanding that their idea be given the light of day at that moment? Right, right. It is. It, my mind was going towards like this whole journey for the manager. Uh, what propelled her uh, from being a business analyst to then becoming a product owner to then becoming the manager for probably other product owners. And the student that you're talking about is, I'm assuming one of a few other POs that report to this manager, no? So that is my expectation, yeah. Right, right. So like, what, what, was, what was, you know, there is always a narrative. When someone gets promoted, they are, they are being informed about, here are some great qualities about you, and this is the reason or the motivation why, why? Like we promoted you to supervise other folks. And I, and I sometimes, you know, uh, or more typically, uh, I, I will not pull my punches. Typically what I find is uh, when, when people have been really good uh, at achieving something, like they're really skilled at a particular aspect, right? I mean, they're great as a business analyst. They understand the domain really, really well. And when uh, they're being promoted, if they are informed that we are promoting you because of your expertise, yeah? Uh, they feel a sense of responsibility that when work happens through them or work happens by people who report to them, the same degree of uh, care and, and expertise is demonstrated in, in those outcomes as well. Yeah. Right? So the role for a person who becomes now a manager shifts to uh, – understanding the frame of reference that the new product owner is coming in with. And rather than uh, trying to do their job and also the job that they now have, which is to be the manager, uh, focus more on delegating, right? Now, from the case study that you share, uh, delegation can be, uh, can be risky, you know, because if the uh, manager has been informed that, you know, we expect the same quality of work with your new uh, subordinates, that could be a tight pressure situation in which uh, they might feel compelled to participate in every conversation, in every single detail. And frankly, it can become overbearing where the subordinates don't feel like they can really bring their whole self. Yeah. Can I jump? Yeah. Can, can I jump in now? Yes. I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, so there's a couple of things about it. So you said they get promoted because they're, they're so good at their job. What I always explain this in class is like, and this has been true of most of the development managers that I have known and worked with. They didn't get promoted because they were the best developer in the building. They got promoted because they reached that stage of expertise where every time somebody let them in the kitchen, they broke things but they have a ton of domain knowledge and they know a lot about the field. So you want to keep them around, but you don't want them cooking for anyone anymore. So the hardest thing about that is that like, if you get brought in as a scrum master or a PO, they might say, look, these are the boundaries of your job. Right. But when people get made managers, nobody explains to them what their new boundaries are. So like that BA that became a PO and a manager who's still acting right. like a BA Nobody said like, hey, now you're not allowed, to, like now you're not supposed to do this stuff anymore. Now you have these other things right. to worry about. 
So figuring out what you're supposed to do instead of the thing that got you a pat on the head in the first place is really hard. Yes. And also, you know, this is primarily one of the big motivations uh, in my org design work where I work with other organizations, like structurally in an agile team, you don't want to structure such that the manager is involved in the day-to-day activities of the scrum team. Yeah. In other words, uh, I've often advocated for uh, a separate separation, right, of flow of work and separation on flow of career growth, talent, and, and people management. So oftentimes the people manager would be someone who is not concerned with uh, the work happening, but more concerned with the people and uh, oh wow, and the support that they get in order to do their work. And this is something that I was able to kind of work with a very large oil and gas company. And it, that, that org design change has, has sustained itself for now three years, you know? So and could I ask you a question about this? Because you said something that I say in class too, but you said it in a completely different way. Right. Um, the follow-up question, I think, to what you just said would be, well, how does that manager do any kind of performance evaluation of that person if they don't work directly with them? They, they, don't, they don't have to work directly with them, right? Where the person is concerned is not so much around performance evaluations, even though that is something that most organizations are not willing to let go, right? So, okay. yes, that is a responsibility that lands onto the people manager. What you find is when the people manager is directly held responsible for the growth of the talent in a particular department, then they take active interest in the growth of their people. But if at the same time, they are also responsible for getting a project done, then now I have two options to choose from. And this is where like most people find their sweet spot. Like some folks are really good at being the people person and everybody wants to join their team. But then there are others who are very draconian, command and control. I get my project done no matter what happens. And they burn people through, right? So from a, from a people management standpoint, there were like two main aspects that happened, right? One, we made sure like the number of people that were reporting to the manager was not a small number. Like, so think in terms of 20 to 30 people. So in too many words, for them to run. Too many for them to go meddle with. Yeah. Because just, just having one-on-ones and making sure like they are, they are having a good experience as an employee, yeah. that their uh, personal growth needs are being met, was significant amount of uh, like people management time. You know? Additionally, uh, the scrum master and the product owners were always, uh, and the team input was always included or given equal weightage in addition to the supervisors in deciding the performance review work. Okay. Right. So the way the system was designed, it was not just a supervisor saying, I rank the, uh, the smartest of all, but it yeah. was more like a more balanced uh, review where the product owner, the scrum master, and the development team members or the peers uh, had equal input in addition to the, the, the person manager, the people manager. Okay. Ultimately, it was people managers throughout the department that were responsible for doing the whole ranking system. Because unfortunately in this company, like saying that we will not do ranking would not fly. So we had to kind of figure out how it can be done in a manner that is not disruptive, but at least uh, does not penalize someone to be a team member. So somebody is still doing like some sort of stacked ranking of staff, but it's not within a team. It's within a department overall. Yes. See, okay. the stack ranking always anyways happens at the department level. What, what ends up happening in most 
instances is team members, they don't get to see how they are ranked against everybody else in their department. Uh-huh. So, so generally, like, I see the stack ranking is based on this very flawed mental model that there is a normal distribution curve. And in that normal distribution curve, only a small percentage of people will be uh, grade A++, right? As if we are all chicken eggs. But but that, that, that kind of like... Um, System is very hard to break unless you get C-level buy-in. And I think like we're kind of distracting a little bit, Dave, uh, on, 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 on that because I guess where I wanted to come back to was to say manager being also involved in the day-to-day work is, is not a good structural system. So if structurally it's not set up correct, okay. Right. When I say structurally, in, in other words, you know how if you look at a road, right, a road system, and if there is a, a, a sign that is incorrect on the exit, you will, the probability of people making a mistake on that road is exponentially higher. Now, of course, you can uh, inform the drivers to veer around uh, a pothole or not drive over the water, uh, but still the structure is set up for a mistake to happen. So this structure of the manager uh, being involved in the day-to-day work of the individuals is set up for these kind of situations. I'm not surprised this happens. So I want to ask you a question about this. Um, so first, do you agree that anybody in a management role has a responsibility to look after the care and feeding of the people that are organizationally reporting to them and helping them grow and evolve. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, hold on. That, that was, I got more. That was just the first part. You said yes. Do you, do you then think that the people who are further down the org chart, like if I report to you, am I also responsible for the care and feeding and growth of you as my manager? Yes. Okay. So how do these people in the Scrum Master role or the PO role, either situation, how do they help, how do they have empathy for and how do they help those people above them find their way to a, le- a less disruption version of the role they're trying to play? Ma- managing up is definitely a skill that needs to be learned. You know, a significant amount of time is not just spent managing the, the people that you work with or, or managing that, but also managing, managing your managers. I often find that when you provide too much information, like without actually processing the information to what is relevant, right? when you provide too much information to managers, uh, they will micromanage you. Yeah. <laughs> it's called help. They help right. you. Right, right. <laughs> so, so one way of, and this may not be applicable in your student's case, you know, yeah. one way is to uh, probably look for what are some things that this uh, person or my manager cares about? Is there a better way of representing that information? So I can take the details away from, from the plate so we can only focus on the important stuff. Yeah. Right? It is also a question of like learning how to build the trust and relationship with your manager. And in this particular situation, based on the description that you've shared, it might be worthwhile to... Uh, I, I hope like we were not in a corona situation because I was almost tempted to say, why not have coffee with your manager? And just, yeah. Right. So something like that, something that is less informal to understand what is their goals, what do they hope to achieve with the success of the product and what can the individual do 
that helps the manager and that hurts the manager. I, I believe like that feedback loop, if present, would have been extremely helpful. Yeah. But lastly, how are other people working for the same manager experiencing? Their oh, relationship? that's good. Okay. So, so go check with the other parallel, the other people that are scrum masters or POs and see if they're having a similar problem and what they're doing about it. Right, right. Not from the standpoint of like uh, being a detective, but more from the standpoint of just being aware of how is yeah. that, how is that going? Because the manager also has a limited resource, no time. If they are spending all the time with you, they're probably not micromanaging somebody else, you know? But if they are like a, a, so maybe a total, you're the sacrificial lamb, you're the one that's taking it on the chin, so everybody else can do what they need to do. Could be right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this, this. I mean, that would be one we one one approach to say the manager has a strong need to be involved in something. Yeah. So might as well give them a distraction. You know, uh, give them some report or something that excites them, and ask them to do that. And and I have used that technique a few times, and I. I basically just distract the manager. It's basically like giving the dog a bone. Uh, yeah. I mean, something like go do this <laughs> for a while. Yeah. And then that buys you some breathing room to actually do the work that you wanted to do. And hopefully that work reflects on the trust that they can grant you, right? To, to delegate some of the responsibilities to you. So can you, can you envision a situation in which like for this, let's start with the BA and then we'll move on to the scrum master role where the BA would be able to, in our current working environment, like you can't go have coffee, right? Where they could have a conversation where they would say, look, here's what I'm seeing. Here's my understanding of my role. I'm unable to do it because you keep stepping all over me. Right. How can we, it, I'm trying to envision myself having this conversation and I can't figure out how to get to a place where it doesn't sound like I am reprimanding my boss. Right. And that is going to be very important. No, Dave, I find like abstracting this thing out to something else. Right. So what I mean by this is you could, you could say, okay, uh, the, as an individual, right. If I was reporting to you and you were my uh, over-involved manager, I could, I could probably say, okay, let me take like 15, 20 minutes and create a list of all the things that we need to do for the success of the project or the success of the product, irrespective of who does it or not. Okay. Yeah. Once I make that, that responsibility, uh, that kind of list, I can then um, exert some degree of uh, control over my tasks to say, here are things that I feel I can do uh, effectively on my own. So I feel like uh, I, should, I should reach out to you as and when I need to, as opposed to you being involved, and frame the conversation in that sense, right? To, to look at what is important for the overall product success, not so much about uh, make it about yourself. And okay. I know I'm, I, I'm trying to veer away from a racy chart. You know, I, I don't mean a racy chart. I, I, I feel I, like I see more and more people in Agile producing their own version of that lately. Right. Because see, uh, the, the, the fundamental divide is, it's probably starts way, way back when, you know, uh, I have a case study in my, in my courses where, uh, where I talk about how a business analyst, when they become a product owner, they are overworked and overstressed. Right. And, and, uh, this often happens because the business analyst probably doesn't realize that when earlier their job 
was to create documentation. As a product owner, their job is now to create an understanding. It is a totally different worldview. So yeah. if you try to keep up with documentation, you're going to get overwhelmed and overworked. Instead, if you focus on helping your team understand what the product is, what, who the customers are, how they, how they will interact with the product, uh, you can get away with a lot of documentation. Well, I think also, I mean, it's important to consider the fact that if I am put into a situation where I don't have clarity around my role, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to do it, right. I'm going to turn to the thing that is most familiar that I know that I totally kick ass at. And I'm not going to care if that steps on somebody else because that's my safe place. Spot on. Yes. So we've got to create, and maybe this is something that kind of comes along with the managing up thing. Maybe mm -hmm. there's a way to create a safer environment for that manager to realize that they can take their hands off the wheel. Because I mean, when I went through that, it's really hard to stop doing the work and yes. to let other people do it, especially if you're not sure if they're going to do it, you know, in quotes, the right way or the way that you would do it. Exactly. Um, that's hard. I, I totally agree. And this is like a constant battle, you know, like even, even for me, right? Sometimes I feel like, oh, I want to delegate. But at the same time, I feel like, oh, I could have done it so much better. But at the same time, uh, if I try to do everything and nothing ever will get done. Yeah. So it's that trade-off and, and being comfortable with that trade-off and having some belief and faith like that the individuals can grow into, uh, into a much better place, you know? Yeah. I feel like this situation is a lot more emotional than the one with the, the head of the company storming right. in. I mean, to me, like that scrum master situation is about creating a mechanism for that executive to deliver their ideas and feel like they're being honored and heard right. without interfering with the team. So as long as you can create a place where they can put them and, and somebody's going back to them and saying, hey, great idea. You know, we'll get to that as soon as we can. And like, okay, I'm going to go have another idea. Um, to me, that's more like the puppy thing. Um, right. They just want to, they want to be heard. They had an idea, but once they get it out of their system, then that creates a space for them to go get a new idea. Right. That's, yeah. Now, what about that conversation? There's certain things that you should be part, because you're obviously going to want to talk about it with that executive. If you were like in the beginning of your career at a small startup and that, the founder of the company kept jamming you up with stuff like this. Right. And the ego that comes along with that and the risk and the fact that it's a small startup. I mean, how would you frame that conversation? Yeah. First and foremost, like at, at this small group of people and I'm saying, okay, less than 50. Yeah. Majority of the company works on personal relationship and individual dynamic. Yeah. This is 15 people, this company, this is tiny. Right. So it is going to work. Uh, it is primarily driven by, by personality. It's primarily dri driven by relationships that people have. And it's very, very, uh, it is comprehensible for individuals to keep in mind the relationships that different people have with each other. In other words, I could look at it and say, oh, Dave and Rich, they get along really, really well. So if I were to go to them, uh, they will both help me. But Rich and X, Y, and Z, they don't get along really well. You see? So it is cognitively feasible, you know, for, for individuals to kind of keep track of how all of this unfolds. Yeah. So, so this kind of leads to like a couple of things, you know, 
one, it's beginning to form what we call culture, right, of the company uh, that you can still control and, 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 and steer. And second, it is forming some kind of relationships that people do not like, but they don't feel they can voice. Because it's such a small group and it's a startup uh, that if you voice your disagreement, you might not be in the in crowd anymore. Well, hold on. I want to I want to jump in there because you said that they don't like, and I feel like whenever I've been in those environments, um, there's aspects about them that are very tense. Yeah, and like, it's exactly what you said. Like I don't want to find myself not part of the in crowd anymore. Right. But the dysfunctional addiction to the stress and the pressure and the patterns of behavior. I can't say I didn't like it because I mean, it kept me going. It pushed me forward, but it was super unhealthy. Yes. (laughs) I will agree with you there, right? It can get super unhealthy. In these dynamics though, there are, there are a few bandits though. There are a few people who who get more, more value out of this ecosystem than, than others. Right. And that is to be true for, for any situation. Like you'll always find like in any group dynamic, like some people in the group are more comfortable, better off than other people in the group. But here, when you look at like the situation where the CTO is uh, asking for Scrum, right? But at the same time, going around to yeah. individual team members, asking for specific ideas to be implemented and as a consequence, items from the sprint are going or carrying over, right, to another sprint. Yeah. Right. Now, consequently, like a, a situation like this, I, I had experienced before uh, along with my friend Michael Tardif. So I, I do have to like bring him out in the conversation now. So, so what was going on? And this is a story I, I borrowed from him. What, what, he sh- what he shared with me was, uh, in a similar situation where the founders used to come in and uh, distract people, what uh, this small startup did in, back in the day in Seattle was they were afraid of uh, voicing their disagreement with the founder. Yeah. So, so they said, okay, rather than uh, an individual saying, I disagree, because then that person uh, will get fired maybe or, or something not pleasant will happen, right? They, they may not get to work on the coolest project anymore. Uh, we can pair up with another individual. And what, what, what we would do is when we pair up with the individual, we are going to do that with, uh, like with honest heart, you know, because the founder, he's the one who's responsible for the survival of the company, has the idea. We want to give him full attention and therefore we are going to have two people listen to the founder's request as opposed to just one person being pulled every time. Because anyways, yeah. many people end up working on that request once one individual starts working on it. So might as well have two people listen to it and they are then going to prioritize the new request from the founder over anything else that they have pulled into the sprint. Because they wanted to acknowledge that when the founder comes in and says do X now, uh, it is an important thing to do. Their only ask was the founder would come to their sprint review every sprint. And at the end of every sprint, what they shared as a big visible uh, uh, information radiator, like a flip chart or a, a dashboard, whatever, was to indicate how many items they planned for. So what would happen is they would say, we planned for 15 items in this sprint. We completed two items and we had 
55 firefights. Yeah. It was some ridiculously high number. And then uh, they would say, we did great. We fought a lot of fire and we, we, we saved uh, the company, right? And this went on happening for a few sprints. Until um, after seven or eight sprints, what was realized by the founder was the more firefights he gives to the team, the less new features he's getting. And also... Um, oh, so you're going to teach him that way. Okay, that's interesting. And, and also... Uh, what the team considers as firefights are not really the building is burning and we must drop everything and fight those fires, but it's more like, oh, what if, if we could do blah, right? So rather than take away capacity or the team's ability to actually build what you know is going to be valuable, why not set aside a time when you do these water explorations as a separate sprint in and of itself? So in that case, you're saying to this executive, put all your ideas in the idea box. Yes. Um, every third sprint, we're going to dedicate to you. Exactly. Right. Dedicate, okay. dedicate to, uh, to new ideas or to something new. Right. And what about the idea? One of my suggestions was that you try to create a small two or three person team whose purpose is to serve the whims and ideas of this executive. So maybe that's the rough and dirty prototype team. They build the proof of concept. Then if it, if it's worth pursuing, the actual team takes it on. Right. That would alleviate the work. But my concern there is that that special teams group that becomes like, they're the go-to people and they're the ones that that executive considers to be the rock stars. Right. So they, they better be rock stars up front. Yeah. You see, like that suggestion, that idea can work uh, if, and I'm assuming like there, there is some kind of, uh, this, there is always some hierarchy. You know, sometimes it's explicit, sometimes it's implicit. Uh, what I mean is, let's say if I have uh, 15 people in this company, your student probably looks up to one or two people in the company already for technical guidance or for yeah. feature guidance, right? So whoever those people are who others look up to, Right, whether they are given the title or not is a separate matter. They can work with um, with the founder, in, uh, and and I'm using terminology from this from this tool called Basecamp, right, where they talk about shaping the feature, and okay. here you basically uh, work a little ahead to say what's the idea, how are we going to define what needs to happen, and more specifically, uh, be very clear on what is not going to be done. And what are some potential rabbit holes that you need to avoid? Okay. Once an idea is shaped enough, then you give um, the, 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 the founder or the CTO or the C-level execs uh, some amount of, they call it betting. Like they bet on these ideas that are now shaped. Yeah. Once you bet on those ideas, they are locked in for six weeks to eight, month, to eight weeks. Okay. Now, nothing can't change. You cannot change anything in those eight weeks. But up until then, you can shape as many ideas as you have the ability to, as you're passionate about. But then you recognize that you can't be implementing everything in the next two months. So you Wait, must- Wait, so hold on though. Who's going to protect the eight-week thing? Is that the team or the executive? Right. And this is where the protection needs to come from everybody to agree that this is the right way of doing it. Okay. Right? Because if, if there is no protection- then the only way out is to slowly uh, educate the, the leader about how their behavior is. Okay, good. Right? Essentially not, 
not helping the product or the, or the team. Yeah. So th- this was the thing that I was, when you were kind of going through that, that I was struggling with was we can't get this guy to leave us alone for two weeks. How the hell are we going to get him to leave us alone for eight weeks? Right. Um, but, but the other thing that the, my next question that I was going to ask you was, I'm going to, I'm going to say what my assumption is and see how you feel about it. I'm assuming that if I'm going to have to have a conversation with this, with this executive, who I'm assuming they have a pretty large ego, Right. I don't want to come at them and say your behavior is bad. I don't uh-huh. want to characterize that or judge the behavior in any way, right. but I do want to find a very diplomatic way to say the impact of your behavior on my ability to do work or our team's ability to do work is X. Like I would rather approach it like, look, when you do the thing, here's what happens. If you need to do the thing, you can do the thing, but this is what's going to happen every time you do it. And then it's their choice. Now, if they choose to continue to interrupt the team, right. then at that point, I have to acknowledge the fact that I choose to keep coming to work there every day and make a decision about that. Right. See, part of it is probably having a conversation around what are the long-term success factors for this product. Okay. By long-term, I mean like you, you basically sit down and say, okay, a year or two years from now, what would make this product success? successful you know and right. then then have a, and i'm hoping the scrum master also has someone like a product owner if not then uh, the cto or the or the c-level exec founder is the po sounds like in either case uh then take the very long-term view and ask what is a very short-term uh, success factor and let's meet at a frequent uh, basis to say what are our near-term success factors that point us towards the longer term success factor. So anytime a new idea or a new concept is being pursued at the expense of rolling over items through the sprint, you have a way to reflect it back to how that is impacting the product success factors. Because in small, small teams like this, I'm sure, uh, or I'm assuming that the, the process is not valued because uh, there could be a very quick argument saying, oh, yeah, Scrum, we don't really have to follow it because we are a startup and we do things differently here. And therefore, it is okay to uh, toss items across multiple sprints. But I don't think startups or any other company could say, oh, yeah, we don't care about being successful, so let's toss that into the next startup I will build. But for now, I just want my fancy ideas to be implemented. So I think bringing the conversation back to these success factors and just asking, like, how will this new idea move the needle on our near-term factors? You just brought up or made something come to mind that we hadn't really talked about and I hadn't planned on us talking about, but um, we're talking about them using Scrum. Maybe right. Scrum isn't the thing that's going to solve the problem that you have. I mean, there's tons of companies out there that are doing some form of Agile because it's cool. I I had a call on Friday with an organization that's trying to use Agile. And when I asked why they were trying to use it, sorry, they're trying to use Scrum. When I asked why you're trying to use Scrum, there wasn't a good answer. So that solves one kind of problem, Kanban another. Each each flavor addresses a different issue. And if the issue that this startup is having is not one that Scrum fixes, then why are they doing Scrum in the first place? Right, right. See, th- that is a very valid point, no? And, and I'm not, see, there's, there are a few open-ended questions in my mind, like how is this startup funded? What is it being funded for? Uh, 
like if they have a lot of money, then by all means, like, you know, you don't have to worry about time, time boxes and worry about like, uh, getting something out because you, you probably have a benefactor who's willing to put the money that it, that it acquires. But if, if you're not flush with cash, then you have no, then you have a race against time basically. Yeah. But right. if you're in a race against time, then I would find it quite, quite concerning that, um, more and more ideas are being pursued, but not seen through to completion. Yeah, you're just chasing squirrels instead of finishing them. Right, and 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 Scrum is a great way of highlighting this problem that we are working on too many things, uh, but not finishing anything. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and Kanban could also be right. I mean, because the, the the mantra "stop starting, start finishing" does come from the Kanban community. And if you were to actually have a work in progress limit, then you would see that problem. But I don't see uh, the whip limit or the time box constraint as being. Well, being- you know, the Kanban could be a really good way to demonstrate to that executive how they're impacting the company's ability to deliver. Mm-hmm. If you were able to show them on a board how they kept jamming up the highway and causing the traffic jam, right? And maybe that would teach them that they needed help changing their behavior. And the other thing I, I really feel like we need to suggest is that if you have a coach or if you can hire a coach, right. you throw the coach at this problem. You don't have, it's, it's hard if you're a scrum master or a PO to speak to your manager and say, you know, stop screwing up my day. Um, but a coach can do that all day long. Yes. The, the coaching would be very helpful. At the same time, I'm, I'm kind of feeling that if they had like uh, the funding to hire another person, I don't think they will spend it on a coach. Right. Oh, that's a really good point. You're right. Because yeah. they're going to look at, Oh, we have so many ideas to implement. Uh, why not get another engineer? Why not get another? Like, Let's hire a coach instead. Yeah. Yeah. You're, that was a really good point. <laughs> Didn't <laughs> think about that. All right. Cool. This was good. So hopefully these are, do you have any, any more suggestions or like any final words? This is I've kind of gone through the stuff I was hoping we could cover here and you definitely shared a bunch of cool ideas, but any final words? No, I think like the, for the, for the, for your friend or your student who is in the startup, uh, I'd say flying by the seat of your pants is, is an experience in and of itself. So make a lot of notes of what you like about it, what you don't like about it. So at least you can reflect on your experience. Uh, three years, four years from now. But if you do make a ton of money, uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to take donations on your startup idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to sort of echo that. I feel like I was talking to somebody about this last week, somebody who's looking for their first job as a scrum master. I said, the first couple you find are going to suck, probably. Like right. every, every bad situation is your teacher. Every job we have can be our teacher if we let it. And right. I think if you're in a rough spot like that, Take what you can what you can get out of it. Maybe you're not getting the positive experience you want, but it can teach you how to be better at your job. And the other thing to remember is that you're the one that shows up every day. You're the one that makes that choice every single day to go into work. And if it's an unfeasible situation and you can't do your job, saying they're making me do this is not a valid excuse. Right. You're the one that chooses to go in there and do that. So I think owning the fact that we're sometimes complicit in this behavior is a big part of it. Yeah. Not a super positive way to end, but I think it felt like it needed to be said. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is the, the, the taking responsibility for, for your own emotions, for your own actions is definitely, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a growth journey, you know, as an individual. And, yeah. But sometimes I do like scapegoats. I ah, blame it on somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I have one final question for you, my friend. Yes. Um, what is the thing in, in work or in Agile or whatever that you are currently like, revved up and excited about and trying to learn about i am struggling because i i have this habit of buying a lot of books and going through a lot of concepts i still haven't like uh, picked up the age of surveillance capitalism right which is like a foot thick right so (laughs) where what i'm really excited about is uh just looking at clarifying my own thinking process you know and how i think about things and I don't know if it has so much to do with agile, but more around when we talk about being agile at the individual level, what we're really saying is as an individual, you are capable of doing open-minded thinking. Wow. Okay. And and what that means is you're, you're, you're able to evaluate your own beliefs, search for um, evidence that probably goes against your established belief systems and then alter your belief system, right? I mean, it's the simple inspect that feedback loop, but happening at a, at a mental level. Yeah. And, and I think this is where the agile community is getting wrapped up in axles because we are trying to change every single individual to be this first class thinker. When in reality, we don't really need that. I mean, what we need is products to, uh, to adapt. We need our processes to adapt, but not necessarily every individual. I know I'm going all over the map on this one, Dave. Uh, it's still, it's, it's, it's a... I know, I think it's, it's really good and it totally resonates with me. I was thinking this morning about the fact that, you know, I'm wondering, I spent so much time trying to figure out how to make Scrum work or, you know, some form of agile work in this COVID, you know, housebound approach. And I was right. just thinking this morning, well, maybe none of these work. Maybe there's got to be the new thing that right. emerges. And also towards that personal agility type thing, I mean, I'm really focused on the fact that every day I set these goals because that's a productivity technique I learned last summer at the Agile Conference. And I keep setting goals that I don't meet because I don't care about them. I'm just setting goals to set them, which right. is dumb. And I need to fix that. <laughs> No, no. Uh, see, uh, focus on systems, dude. Like the book by um, this fellow, uh, Atomic Habits, yep. and uh, the power of habit and things like that. Like they've kind of opened up. It, 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 this is the hard part, you know. Like today, uh, today in the morning, I had like I'm gonna do blah blah blah, and then I did not make any progress on it because I got sidetracked into uh, an important uh, Wikipedia page review and things like that, right? So instead of me like beating myself up, like I didn't accomplish my goal, uh, the system I'm trying to work on is to just say, okay, did I, did I use that time to watch uh, nonsense TV? No. Did I waste my time? No. Then it was a good, good spend of my time. And I will not like worry about it and just feel good about, you know. Yeah, totally get you, man. I'm right there with you. Right. So like uh, goals, you know, they always uh, make you feel bad. But if you build like these simple systems, like when I need a little boost, I go and make myself coffee and just talk to my kids and it makes me feel good. And then I come and do my work. So 
So I'm trying to steer more and more towards these little habit loops that I like doing. And that way, um, at least I don't feel bad, you know. And I do uh, an article that I wrote, uh, which, which I really enjoyed the process of writing, uh, was the systems thinking for teams. Yep. And uh, that was a beautiful uh, Saturday. You know, I, I sat through, there was no mental pressure to finish it on time or finish it in two hours or three hours. I just enjoyed writing it. And it turned out to be really cool, right? So the more I'm realizing that the more targets I set for myself, the less I enjoy. So this is where I was sort of going with the thing about us and COVID is that now that people are working at home, you don't have supervision, people work whatever weird hours they work. Like, I mean, most of the people at the company I work at have a phone call like seven o'clock in the morning. And I usually work till like three o'clock in the morning. So I'm not getting up by seven. Right. So what it becomes is this study of how am I using my time throughout the day? Am I using it in an effective way? And right. am I, if I'm switching course, which I'm doing the same thing you're doing, this was the right choice. It added the most value. It just right. didn't have anything to do with what I planned. Correct. Then what is the point of that planning? Or just do I, I, instead of a sprint, do I need like hours, like plan every hour, one hour at a time? I don't know. You know, I have like a, I'll, I'll turn my video on, you'll see it. Okay, you see this? He's showing a notebook, yes. Yeah, yeah. So these are my task lists, right? So this book starts on... I have the same thing. <laughs> yeah, May 2019. And we are now... So there are things I do, like I just put a, a date and then I make my task list and I do my tick box and I, and I continue through it. Mine are yeah. color-coded. Right, right. See, there's, yeah, I, there, is a, there is like some color scheme or, or, or something. But what I find just by doing that, uh, on, before I start my day saying here are 10 things that I think I need to be doing, I can let go of it because my, my, uh, ah, okay. my runtime memory doesn't worry about it, right? Okay. So then I pick a task that I want to do and I finish it off. And some of those are like... Uh, Little, little tasks, like they're just chores. So I'll do some chores and then I'll do the focus work and, and kind of, yeah, Okay. Cool. Between, you know? All right. So this was a nice digression at the end of the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I'll, and I'll put in a link to your systems uh, thinking article. Um, what if people want to get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, EvolveAgility.com. Okay. And your, all your classes are listed there as well? Yes. Okay. And what if they want to find the podcast that you're doing, the video podcast? Right. So I will send you that link as well. Okay. Yeah. Because cool. I, I am, I am uh, asking for input on uh, more case studies. So. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So mm-hmm. send me case studies. I'll make sure to include the link to the video. And dude, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dave. Cool.